Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 56, Die Empty, Unleash Your Best Work Every Day, featuring Todd Henry. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Today, we're going to be answering a listener question related to our episode 50, when we talked about keys to personal productivity with Eric Fisher. But first, we are going to talk about how you and your team can stop deferring your most important work and instead unleash your best work every day. Our guest today is Todd Henry, the founder and CEO of Accidental Creative, a consultancy that helps organizations generate brilliant ideas. Of course, we've had him here on Engaging Leader before to talk about his first book, The Accidental Creative, How to Be Brilliant at a Moment's Notice. And all I had to do is see the title of that book and knew that I needed to read it. And uh, today we're here to talk about Todd's newest book, Die Empty, Unleash Your Best Work Every Day. Todd, welcome back to Engaging Leader. Jesse, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me back. In your first book, Accidental Creative, you actually tell a story that led to this idea for this whole new book of its own, Die Empty. What's, what is that story? Can you share that again with us? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So you know, several years ago, I was sitting in a meeting and um, you know, a friend who was, who was leading the meeting, he asked kind of an out-of-the-blue question. He said, what do you think is the most valuable land in the world? And you know, that's kind of an interesting question. Okay, so we start throwing out guesses. Uh, you know, oil fields in the Middle East, diamond mines of South Africa. You know, all these things. And he said, "No, you're all wrong. The, the most valuable land in the world is the graveyard, because in the graveyard are buried all of the unwritten novels, all of the unlaunched businesses, all of the, all of the things that people said. I'm going to get around to that tomorrow. I'll start that tomorrow. And one day their tomorrows ran out. And that day I went home and I wrote two words um, on an index card. I put them on my wall of my office. I put them in my notebook. Um, and they really have defined the operating ethic of my life really for the last, I guess, seven or eight years now um, since that occurred. And those two words were die empty. And what that means to me is I want to know that every night when I lay my head down, I can say, all right, I can lay my head, head down satisfied with how I engaged my life and my work today. Um, I didn't leave anything inside of me that needed to be expressed. Um, I, don't, I can't do everything. None of us can do everything we want, but we can lay our head down at night satisfied that at least we engaged what was in front of us with everything that we have. And that's really been the, the operating ethic I've aspired to have in my life for the last several years. And so when I wrote the first book, that was the, the closing anecdote in The Accidental Creative. And when it came time to start talking about writing the next book, I thought, well, honest, I, I told my publisher, I said, well, honestly, I wrote the entire first book just so that I could write the last chapter of the first book <laughs> and just so I could share that story at the end. Because I really believe firmly that people need to live with that kind of a mindset and ethic so that they don't you know, squander their life and their opportunities. And they said, well, great. Why don't you just pick up from there and, and write the next one? So really, this, this new book, Die Empty, is an extension of 
the first book in that it's about living a life and building a body of work, which by the way, work doesn't just mean your job. Work is any place you add value. So it's your relationships. It's um, you know how, how you approach your, your work and your job and your relationships, not just what you do. But it's really about building a body of work that you can be proud of, that you can point to and say, that represents what I care about. Because we are, we're all building a body of work, whether we represent, whether we realize it or not, Jesse, every one of us right now is building a body of work. So the question is, will your body of work over the course of time reflect what you really care about and what you want it to stand for? And so that's that's really at the end of the day what Die Empty is all about. Accidental Creative, now that it's been many months since I read that, it what I took away from it was a set of structures and processes to help us, whether as individuals or as teams, continue to create on demand, that we're not just uh, outputting, 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 and hoping that when we are asked to be brilliant that the idea is going to be there, but uh, uh, to, to structure our lives and our, our work process so that we can be creative. And uh, this book seemed like it, it wasn't, I would say, go beyond saying it, it was an extension of that book. It's almost like it went beyond the theories and how-tos of that book and actually gives a tool that I can just cover to cover, go through and read these stories, complete some exercises, and whether with myself or, or my team, feel like I know now how to apply that creativity to make a difference in the world. Not only am I going to create on demand and be brilliant at a moment's notice, but it's going to be applied creativity that's going to make a, a difference in the world, a difference that I care about. That's great to hear because that's exactly what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be an extension really of that first book. The first book tells you what to do, but it doesn't tell you how to go about your work, right? It doesn't help mm-hmm. you identify what you should be pointing those those um, you know your focus, your assets, your time, your energy. It doesn't tell you what you should be pointing that toward because ultimately at the end of the day, Jesse, your fate determines your fate, right? F-A-T-E, your focus, your assets, your time, your energy. Where you put those four things over the course of your life consistently will determine your fate. It will determine where you end up and, and the kind of body of work that you build. So really what I wanted this book to be was – uh, a, a helpful tool for people to start thinking about where they're putting those four things, focus, assets, time, and energy, to make sure they're putting them behind things in a purposeful way, not just um, sort of drifting and, and being haphazard about it. Because, uh, you know, that the the in the research that I did for the book, the, one of the biggest areas of regret for people later in life was that they were not more purposeful, more intentional about the kinds of decisions they made, the kind of risks they took, the kind of intuitive leaps that they followed throughout the course of their life. And that doesn't mean just, hey, throw everything away and go follow your whims. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Actually, it means simply being purposeful about how you engage your work every day and not falling prey to some of the forces that can cause you to stagnate and become mediocre in life and work. Yeah, and as you point out in the book, whether an individual or a team, you can turn around one day and realize that you you have become stagnant, that you're not really doing work that matters or making the difference that you once thought you've you've sort of gotten choked or maybe in a rut. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, it happens almost um, without notice in in some people's lives. I mean, mediocrity 
is not a destination of choice, and yet it's chosen on a daily basis. It's chosen in small ways over time. Uh, you know, this word mediocrity comes from two words in the original language: the word medius, which means middle, and the word ochrus, which means rugged mountain. So to be mediocre, literally translated, means to stop halfway up a rugged mountain, to stop halfway to your objective. So why do people do that? Why do they camp out? Why do they decide, eh, close enough? Why do they, as Herbert Simon called it, satisfice, right? The satis- it's, it's the mashup between satisfied and sufficing. Why do people get to a point where they say, eh, you know, I'm going to strap on the golden handcuffs. I'm going to settle in. I'm, I'm, I'm going to forego my original impulses for the sake of a little immediate gain. I'm going to forego long-term value on the altar of short-term value. Why, why do people do that? And it happens in subtle ways over time. And there are seven forces that I go into in the book that uh, I've identified as kind of the core places where I've seen that happen in the lives of individuals, but also in in organizations. And they are I put them in uh, order A B C D E F G, <laughs> just because it's easier to remember that way. You, you know I love alliterations and you know acronyms and whatever. I had mm-hmm. fresh in the accidental creatives. So now we have A B C D E F G. But the seven are aimlessness, which means you haven't really identified a through line for your work. Your work is just a a melded blend of tasks and projects, but you don't really have a through line that you're working toward in your work. And when that happens, we become aimless and it's hard to pull our cohesive energy together around the work that we're doing. And again, work isn't just your job, by the way. It's any place you add value in your life. So that also counts for people um, interacting with families or friends or you know, in whatever social service kinds of things they do. Um, so that's aimlessness. B is for boredom. There are many people, Jesse, that I would call among the busily bored. There are people in their life who they're very busy. They've got a lot going on, but intellectually, they're not staying stimulated. You know, they're not firing um, the right kinds of neural networks to keep them stoked and and focused um, and, and on edge creatively. And so, you have to be fiercely curious to avoid becoming a part of the the busily bored. And so, you know, I offer some strategies for doing that as well in the book. The fiercely curious part. That was one of my favorite chapters in the book. One, because it exemplified one of the ways that this book is different than other books on the marketplace that may be available to help you plan a work strategy or plan a purposeful life. I mean, we are talking about the accidental creative, you know, the guy who teaches you how to be creative and how to be brilliant at a moment's notice. So this is going to be a book that's going to be particularly helpful for anybody, uh, any creatives or managers or uh, solution providers. People need to solve problems and and just be brilliant at a moment's notice. So this combating this problem of busy boredom uh, is is key. And and uh, like one of the one of the things in there that I liked a lot was this idea of a bliss station as as one yeah. of the ways to help you every day be curious but can you ex- explain that what what you mean by bliss station yeah that was that was a joseph campbell um quote he he said that everyone needs in their life to have what he calls a bliss station it's a place where you go where nobody knows where you are nobody cares what you're thinking nobody cares what you're listening to but you can just go there and just be and explore and do the things that that bring you joy regardless of what others think about them um it's it's a a sacred space in your life where you just carve out time for yourself to think and to write and to pursue your curiosities. And unfortunately, 
unfortunately, in the fray of the hustle of the day-to-day that we many of us live in, um, there's not a lot of space. We don't have those kinds of carved-out moments where we can just think and do and, and live and experience in a way that allows us to pursue our innate curiosity. So I think that, A, having a time set aside, and B, having a specific space set aside, a sacred place, a bliss station set aside – to, to go and pursue you, your curiosity is important because what we formalize is what actually happens. What we structure and build systems for, those things actually happen. Um, but if we just expect it to happen in the cracks and crevices, it won't. So that was, I, for me, that's been one of the most effective practices in my life. Um, I'm, all of the things that I talk about, Jesse, all of the things that I share with companies, um, all of the books I've written, the podcasts I've done, everything – that for me is the source of the river. It's the it's having this time set aside to study, think, write, explore, play with ideas. If I didn't have that, none of the other things that I do would exist. So I, I can't emphasize enough for people: you have to have that in your life. You need to create these these sacred spaces. Now, I have an office in my home, which I had long dreamed of having a place like this. But I then I, I so I finally built one. But then I ended up doing more and more work. In here, and then it gets to where I'm working eight or ten hours a day, so it doesn't necessarily feel like a bliss station anymore. Do you then need to have a like a quiet office somewhere else that sort of inspires that reflection and creativity? No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I mean, I I I do most of my thinking and my processing and all of that in the same space where I do all of my writing and my work and my, you know, emails and all of that. It's it's a mindset shift. You just have to. Have, I mean, it could be a couch, it could be a chair, it could be anything, right? It it doesn't. There's nothing special about the space itself. Now, if you have some space that you can go to that's beautiful, that inspires you, that's quiet, that's that's great, that's fine. But it's really about a mindset shift. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm in my home, in my home office, um, you know, things are a little crazy out, you know, with the kiddos, um, they're running around, they're screaming, whatever I put, I put in my noise canceling earphones and I can lay on the couch in my sofa and think and write and study. And it's as if I'm in the middle of the woods somewhere, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter because I can, I can create that space. It's a mindset shift. It's an attitude shift, not necessarily a physical space. And, you know, I think Jesse, that's one of the things that can cause people to not do this. I think they're looking for the perfect space or the perfect system or the perfect whatever. And it just doesn't exist because you can be in the middle of the woods in the most serene and beautiful place and yet be completely distracted if you bring your, your iPhone along or your, you know, your email or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a mindset shift more than it is anything. Absolutely. So well, that's good. That's one tool against the B for boredom. What's C about? C is about comfort. Um, you know, in The Accidental Creative, I wrote that the love of comfort is frequently the enemy of greatness. And I believe that you cannot pursue comfort and greatness at the same time. It's impossible. If comfort is your objective, you will eventually fall short of achieving your full potential. People who achieve great things in life are people who do what's right and what's necessary even when it's uncomfortable. That's where growth comes from. That's where greatness comes from. So we have to have practices in our life of stretching ourselves, of setting goals. Um, I have three kinds of goals that I talk about in the book, step, sprint, and stretch goals. And they all kind of nest within one another. And you have to be comfortable in developing skills and setting goals that push you outside of your comfort zone if you want to continue to grow. So D is for delusion. Uh, you know, we, <laughs> those of us who have been subjected to the televised 
talent show craze over the last you know dozen <laughs> years or so with American Idol and X Factor and America's Got Talent and all of these or Brit- Britain's Got Talent or you know all of these shows that have people parading across the stage. I mean, it's kind of become fashionable to watch the first several episodes because they always have the auditions of the people who are let's just say less than self-aware, right? They get up there and they start singing and you listen and you're like, how could you ever possibly think that you're a great singer? And then they're just flabbergasted they weren't chosen for the show. I'm the next American Idol, right? Mm-hmm. How could how could they possibly think this? Well, it's because they're deluded. It's because somebody at some point told them something about themselves, you know, you're a great singer or whatever, that just simply wasn't true. It wasn't in service of them. It was in service of the person who told them. Um, because it makes me feel better if I encourage you, even if it's not true. And if we want to be successful, we have to be really great at identifying um, the, those places where we might be deluded and then establishing a, a code of ethics for how we engage our day and making sure that we're building our activities and our lives around that code of ethics. Um, it's super important to do that. It's easy to go to your grave deluded about your your true skills. Some people, by the way, Jesse, would rather live with the perception of invulnerability than risk potential failure, which is really, really sad. Um, And so they never try anything. Well, give me an example for how you would combat that without going to the opposite extreme of fear and never actually doing anything because you're afraid that maybe you're not good enough or you're afraid of what other people will say. Well, for me, knowing yourself and establishing an ethic for how you engage your life is about understanding what drives you. It's about understanding the narratives that might be playing out in your life. For example, some people, um, and we see, again, we'll go back to the televised talent show thing, but this is true in organizations too. For some people, recognition is the highest form of currency. Mm -hmm. I have to be recognized as special at what I do. And so, um, for me, you know, being famous or being a singer is the ultimate goal in life because I'm only worthy as a human if other people validate me. Well, this happens in organizations. We see people do this all the time. People place extreme value on their title, on you know their pay grade, on um, how much power or prestige they have within an organization. And so they do everything they can to protect that because that's more important to them. That's a driver that's driving them that maybe in some cases they're unaware of. They're not even aware that they're making decisions to protect their prestige instead of making decisions to help them do their best work, even if that means accepting a job or a task or a role that that offers a little less prestige. So over time, they make small compromises in their values, um, in their ethic, because they're allowing false narratives to drive their life. So that would be that would be one example, and I mean I've seen this play out so many times. Unfortunately, I can't get too specific because I don't want to violate anybody's privacy, right? But <laughs> I mean I'm sure you could probably illustrate, uh, or you could probably think of and 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 share many stories as I could of people that you you see them and you just think, man, do, you can't possibly think that you you can't possibly believe that to be true, you know, or do you understand how you are completely self-sabotaging your career in the effort to, um, you know, try to protect yourself or in the effort to try to um, avoid having some glory taken from you? You're completely sabotaging your potential for doing great work. The people who throw themselves into process become um, lovers of process and lovers of outcome, they have a through line in their life, regardless of whether they're fully recognized for their work. Now, you, you don't want to be stepped on like a doormat, but you, know, you can't make recognition your main 
objective if you want to do great work. Harry S. Truman said, you can do anything you want as long as you don't mind who gets the credit, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that quote because it's totally true. The funny thing is there, Jesse, what I've discovered in my life, and I'm sure you've seen similar things in your work, is that people who work hard and focus on contributing value in the end, they're the ones who end up getting recognized anyway, right? If they they really focus on adding as much value as possible, keeping their nose down and doing their work. So that's delusion. E is for ego. And uh, this is a similar dynamic to delusion. Some people become inflexible because, again, they can't allow their ego to become violated. So they'd rather drive the ship to the bottom of the ocean than admit that it might be sinking because they made a wrong a wrong turn at some point. Um, and when that happens, we become inflexible. We become incapable of making adaptations and changing our mindset. So we ha- we can't allow ego. And by the way, this doesn't mean charging into the room like a bombast and saying, you know, pay attention to me and thumping your chest. Sometimes ego looks like, okay, fine. If that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to go hide in the corner and I'm just going to withhold my best work from you. It's playing the victim. That's a form of ego, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't feel like I'm being recognized. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to withhold my work and let's see how well you do without me. Well, that's another form of abdication. And it's unfortunate because, again, I see this a lot. I see it, especially in creative services firms, right, where designers don't feel like their voice is listened to or, um, you know, writers never seem to to have as much of a say as they want or whatever it is. And so they say, okay, fine, just tell me what you want me to do. Well, that's not a path to great work. That's not a path to satisfaction. And the truth is that people think, well, if I just jump to a different job, things are going to be better. Well, no, that's not often the case because these dynamics exist everywhere. You know, so you have to be good at saying, listen, I'm going to be confident. I'm going to be adaptable. I'm not going to allow, allow myself to be a doormat. But at the same time, I'm not going to allow my ego to cause me to abdicate my contribution. So that's E. That's ego. F is for fear. And fear is what keeps us from acting. It's what keeps us from trying new things, from ultimately finding our voice. And in order to find our voice, we have to be willing to say yes to opportunities, to experiment, to try, to grow. Um, to take things that we're observing and weave them into our work um, and and to to go outside of our comfort zone, to sail perpendicular to the shoreline and not just rely on imitating what's worked before. That's how you discover your voice is by doing, noticing, and then redirecting along the way. Jad Abumrad, the founder of Radiolab, the, the host of Radiolab, uh, described how they found their voice for the show. And I love this. He said one day he was playing around with some audio files and he happened to create the the tag that is now the tag for Radiolab, which is the this is Radiolab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, thing. And he said it was like a like an arrow dropped out of the sky, um, pointing in a certain direction that was left there by his future self. And he said at that moment he realized this is an arrow I need to follow. And the process of finding your voice is the process of following those arrows, right? It's a process of paying attention to them and then following them when when the time when when appropriate. Um, and then G is for guardedness. The more successful we become, Jesse, whether it's in organizations or individual, uh, you know, in indi- individual careers, the more tempting it is to close yourself off from others, to become self-protective, or to uh, to not share yourself with others because you want to preserve some kind of image. But brilliant work is the collective grasp for the next. It's groups of people stumbling into the unknown together and awkwardly pursuing what Steven Johnson calls the adjacent possible, right? Borrowing a term from evolutionary biology. So we have to be good at 
pursuing the adjacent possible together, which means we need to stay connected to other people and have networks and practices to help us stay connected to others and to have important conversations rather than avoiding those conversations. So those are the seven principles that, that I call them the seven deadly sins that lead to mediocrity, right? Uh, aimlessness, boredom, comfort, delusion, ego, fear, and guardedness. And uh, if we want to get our best work out of us over the course of our life, we have to be good at monitoring our life for those seven things and then putting practices in place as a bulwark against them. And that this book, Die Empty, Unleash Your Best Work Every Day, gives a step-by-step process for basically avoiding those seven deadly sins of mediocrity. One that I want to talk a little bit more before we run out of time, you mentioned having a code of ethics, which is similar to having a statement of values, but it's it's pretty darn different too. Can you tell us a little more about what you mean? Yeah, so so values, in my mind, values, while, while really great and aspirational, I think it's wonderful, um, you know, values tend to be passive, right? Like I value family, I value um, excellence, I value, you know, and, and these are the kinds of things we tend to talk about when we talk about values. And that's fine. Listen, there's nothing wrong with striving for excellence, nothing wrong with valuing your family, of course. But I found that because they're so passive, it's easy to, for them to become almost like a mindless part of the way you think about your life rather than something that you actively strive towards. So a couple of years ago, I came up with um, a practice that has worked really, really well for me, which is that I established a code of ethics. Instead of passive values, they're active ethics, meaning they're specific descriptors of how I will engage my work. So for example, excellence, that as a value doesn't necessarily give me a specific point of traction to help me engage my work. I mean, how do you define excellence? I mean, what does that look like? I could always squeeze a little more out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Or I could always spend another 15 or 20 minutes making something better. No matter how good it is, I could keep perfecting it forever. But instead, what I've done is I've tried to figure out, all right, for example, the example I gave in the book was the the code of ethics that, that drove um, that was sort of my original thumbprint for all of this, which is um, artistic, curious, healthy, and energetic, right? So whenever I would look at my schedule, I would ask myself, when I go into this meeting, how am I going to be artistic? Meaning, how am I going to reveal reality behind reality? How am I going to ask questions that cause people to think about this from a holistic a systematic way rather than just as a little piecemeal parts of a, a puzzle that we have to put together. I'm curious. I'm going to ask more questions than I answer. I'm going to per, I'm going to ask why. I'm not going to be afraid of that. I'm going to do that consistently. Healthy. I'm going to model health for myself and my team. I'm going to make sure that I'm building practices into my life that keep me in a position to be healthy. And then energetic. I'm going to approach each meeting, each interaction, each work project, bringing more energy than I take from the situation. So what that did for me, especially during the season when these were kind of the operating ethic for me, um, what I did, what, what that did for me is it gave me kind of a way to engage with my work that was more of a thumbprint that I could place on any situation rather than just kind of a vague set of values that I was striving for. You know, what does it mean to honor my family in my work? Well, I don't know, but I know how to be energetic with my family. I know how not to be the dad that comes home and is, um, you know, like completely drained from the day and sucks energy out of the room. Like I know how to do that, but just to say family, well, what does that mean? Well, yeah, I worked hard for my family all day, you know? So I, of course I'll come home and I'll be tired and mm-hmm. I value my family, but I'm tired, you know? So it just, it gave me more of an action plan, you know, and, and also it, it helps me as I reinforce 
these kinds of things with my kids. We have a three-pronged um, thing that we tell our kids. I just I walked my daughter to school this morning and, and I told her these three things before she went in the door. I said, listen, here's your action plan for the day. Here's your code of ethics. Work hard, have fun, and love other people. Do those three things and you're going to be successful today. And that's, that's the code of ethics that I give them yeah, every day when we go to school. Work hard, which means, look, put yourself into your work today because your job as a student is to put yourself fully into your study so that you're honoring your teacher and you're honoring yourself, your brain, your, you know, your potential. Um, have fun because you know, you're a kid. So have fun with it, right? And have fun in the course of your day. And then love other people. Be good to other people. Put other people before yourself. Make sure that you're honoring other people and how you approach your life, your interactions, your work. And if you do those three things, you're going to be happy. I didn't want to give them the pep talk that said, you know, try your best or whatever. You know, I mean, what does that even mean? I wanted to give them something specific that they could act on. So, you know, at the end of the day, we asked them, did you work hard today? You know, did you have fun today? What was, what, what did you do that was fun today? And then, you know, did you love other people? Talk about an instance where you loved other people today. I, I like that. I think that is a lot more helpful than just thinking of what values drive you, which is important. But that, I just think of like your, the last example in your, the, the four code of, in your own code of ethics, energizing, that you're going to bring more energy to any interaction uh, as opposed to being an energy drainer. And a lot of times, I think what's helpful about those being more action-oriented is, okay, maybe you don't always have a chance to plan an interaction to live that way. But over time, if you build in some time for reflection, you're going to be catching yourself and realize, oh, you know, I was the energy drain in the room in that interaction. And uh, and you do tend to make adjustments as you go forward. I mean, if you're a leader, you need to be an energizer and you can't perpetually go on with an aura that is an that is energy draining and a lot of us have have had managers or leaders that are energy drains so being proactive and having an action oriented code of ethics definitely i think is helpful for reflection and is going to counteract a lot of those false ideas that you talked about those false beliefs uh, like i always, like recognition is the only form of compensation uh, that you mentioned earlier Agree completely. Yeah, agree completely. And so I think I think what it does again is it emphasizes action over contemplation. And um, you know, I mean, we can think all we want, but thinking doesn't change the world, right? Thinking doesn't create um, the kind of impact that we want to have. It's only action that does that. So all all the great thoughts in the world, all the great plans in the world, all of the strategy in the world, none of that matters without decisive action. We have to act. And so that's why I love these code of ethics as an approach for making decisive action on your projects, because it always gives you traction to as a starting point for anything that you're doing the book is die empty unleash your best work every day it is releasing september 26th the very day that this podcast is being aired so if you're listening to this you can go out right now and get this book todd where can people find out more about you and and get their hands on the book yeah, the best place to go probably is toddhenry.com. And from there, you can get to, you know, Accidental Creative and all the work I do there and also the uh, the podcasts I create and whatnot. But, uh, and, and obviously about the book as well, but toddhenry.com is the best place to go. Todd, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. Well, before we wrap up today's show, we have a listener question. 
This is based on Engaging Leader episode 50, Keys to Personal Productivity, featuring Eric Fisher, who is the host of Beyond the To-Do List, and of course, the author of the brand new Amazon book with the same name, Beyond the To-Do List. In episode 50, Eric and I discussed several principles for personal productivity, and Eric also suggested several tools and apps that he'd been finding helpful, some of which I was familiar with, but uh, some were brand new to me. And so Rita asks, Now that several weeks have gone by, I thought it would be interesting to know whether you've tried and stuck with any of the tips or tools that Eric introduced to you. Well, Of the stuff that he mentioned in episode 50, the main one that I put into action immediately is an app called Text Expander. It's available for Mac and also for iOS, and and I'm not sure it may be available on Windows and Android as well. Uh, I actually first got the trial. It's a fairly expensive app considering it has a, a pretty limited scope, if you will. It's $35 for the Mac app and another $5 for the iOS. So I, the same day that I talked to Eric, I downloaded the trial version of Text Expander. And, uh, and I have to say, I'd heard several other people mention this. And so he basically was the straw that broke the camel's back. I finally went and got it. And I frankly was pretty surprised how often I was using it. I have to say I didn't use many of the included little tricks. Uh, Basically what what it does is it takes me a while to type out my full email address. And so you can, with a little keystroke, for example, I I can just do uh, semicolon E-M-E, which is my engaging leader email address, or I can do semicolon E-M-A, which is my Aspendale Communications email address. And so what typically takes... 15, 20 seconds to type and get wrong sometimes, I can just, with a quick keystroke, it happens automatically. I also started finding myself uh, coming up with much longer snippets. For example, when I have an interview coming up with a guest, there are certain pieces of information that are helpful for them to know. What process are we going to use? How long is the interview going to be? That's essentially the same for, for everyone. And so I wrote that all up, put it in Text Expander, and now, boom, it's just there and available. I also use it for my email signature, the part of the email that has your name and a phone number and so forth. I get annoyed when that appears on every single email and every single reply. And so for years now, I have not had a standard signature. So now I have that in Text Expander, so when I do want to have a signature, I can, with a quick keystroke, have it appear there. I've also been using it for quick email replies like got it, comma, thanks, um, and, uh, you know, will do short short ones like that that I tend to use over and over again, and it just saves me those keystrokes. Now, I also use, I do a lot of my emailing using uh, Dragonspeak, which is a voice uh, dictation tool. And so I, I don't use Text Expander maybe as much as I would if I weren't already voice transcribing things. But I get a lot of email, and I just find that the faster I can go th- process it, the, the better. And so those little tricks help me do that. I should have mentioned that I only today downloaded the iOS app for my iPhone and iPad for Text Expander. I'd been meaning to because I find that, of course, you type even slower on those devices. 
And so it was actually this question from Rita that prompted me to, okay, go ahead and, and download that and start taking advantage of it. I definitely had proven to myself that this was worth it. it uh, $35 for the main app is seems like a lot of money, but um, a minute here, a minute there, it adds up to valuable uh, time well saved uh, for that. The other app that Eric had mentioned that I had tried but never really used much was called 3030, and that's the other one that I had also put into practice more so since then. Uh, I don't use it all the time, but I, I often use it when I have a, a piece of work that I know is going to take a certain amount of time, and it, it could easily expand. If I There's certain types of work that could expand, and before I know it, I look up and I see two hours has gone by, and I really want to get this done in 30 minutes or one hour. And so 3030 is a little app that will, uh, you can set it to any timer, but it'll it'll pop up and let me know when when a certain time period has gone by. And a lot, a lot of times I'll set that for 30 just to say, uh-oh, uh, half of my a lot of time is up. I better really stay focused on this. The trick there, and I've heard Todd Henry talk about this and write about this. In fact, it comes up in Die Empty, is there's a point at which you don't want to disturb your flow. And yet you also want to stop and reflect on, am I making the best use of my time? And so I, I am not a slave to tools like 3030, but I, I do recognize there are some times when it's helpful to stop a minute and make sure I'm really working on what's most important or in the most focused fashion. So good question. Uh, Text Expander and 3030, I both do like those, and I, I agree with Eric for recommending them. Well, if you have a question or comment about a current or past episode or about any topic related to leadership, communication, and engagement, we would love to include you on the conversation. You can leave an audio message by calling 989-787-0060, or you can go to engagingleader.com and click on the record voicemail button. And of course, you can submit questions or comments by email to jesse at engagingleader.com, or on Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy, or on Facebook or LinkedIn. All right, leaders, that wraps up this episode. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 56, as in episode 56. And while you're on the show notes page, please provide your thoughts or questions in the comments section, or you can connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.